Good morning, guys. Good morning, uh, Way to wake up uh, an hour earlier uh, this morning. Hey, I was going through some things uh, this week, uh, things that I've held on to uh, for like the past 20 or 30 years or, or so, things that at some point I think have uh, maybe been valuable to me or, or valuable enough to me that I've held on for the past 20 to 30 years. And uh, I was looking through some stuff, and uh, when I was growing up, man, I loved sports. Like, sports were my ambition from the time I was like seven on, like, it just kind of became my world. And so naturally, as a young boy, I started uh, gathering about sports cards. Uh, and uh, this thing right here is a book of cards that I've carried with me for the past 30 years of my life, uh, which right now seems very old. Uh, and I, I remember sitting in my house, I would go, I would run across the highway. There was a uh, little convenience store that was across the highway, and I'd go and I'd, I'd get these uh, packs of cards and these, uh, um, do, you know, do you guys remember like those packs of baseball cards that had the nasty gum on the inside of those? Like I would go get those, and for whatever reason, like I just joined that gum and spit it out like two seconds later, and then hopefully have another pack. And I would sit there, I'd take all those cards, and like the basketball cards too, and just hours of my life, I would put them inside the book, just flipping through, organize them by teams. I'd organize them uh, by players at some point, and then like when I get tired of looking at them, like every play, then I just go back and reorganize them by teams. It was just crazy. Yeah, or like, like just hours and hours of life. And I'm watching my son begin to do that now. And so I'm wondering, like, if in 30 years he's going to be walking around with a book, too. Like, I don't know why I'm still hanging on to this thing. Because I really don't think, like, I've got a friend who deals with cards. He's like, uh, dude, you are living in the wrong time of life to be collecting cards because all those are pretty much junk. I'm like, okay. But for whatever reason, it's still a treasure to me. And uh, in 1996, I, well, I found this trophy uh, in my closet. 1996, I went to a. Uh, uh, a boys basketball camp, a high school boys basketball camp. And during that camp, there was a uh, three-point championship. Um, everybody wanted to be the three-point champion. But it turns out, I was. I, I won the championship in 1996. And so for 24 years, like, this has been valuable to me. Like, it was valuable to me to win then, but for some reason, like, I haven't been able to get rid of this little, you know, $5 trophy. If that, right, I've been packing around with me everywhere that I've moved. And uh, this, uh, y'all remember getting these when you were growing up? These uh, Letterman jackets, right? In 1998, I got my Letterman jacket, and really, I, listen, I've been walking around this, I've, I've moved a ton since 1998, and this has been hanging in every one of my closets for 22 years of our moves. And it's really become kind of a shrine to the things that were so much, uh, were so important to me, like powerlifting. I got a powerlifting letter on here, and, and football. And uh, basketball is on here. And I was an honor student, believe it or not. And so that was important to me. And it becomes a shrine to the things that at that point in my life were the most valuable, were the treasures. But I would say were the main ambitions in my life. And I'm guessing if you were to go to your closet, if you were to go to your attic, or if you were to dig somewhere deep into the recesses of your basement, I'm guessing that you would find some type of shrine to the ambitions of your past. Maybe it's a trophy, maybe it's a jacket, maybe it's love letters from somebody that you've dated, or hopefully it's the person you're sitting beside right now, right? Um, but maybe, I'm guessing you would find some type of, of information that would say, this was the main ambition of my life. And as I look back over the things that I found from this week, it's pretty sobering to look at. Like, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the memories that I have. But it's sobering to think about that these were actually the things that were the ambition of my life. They were the most important things to me. And as I look at these things, right, I have to, I have to ask myself the question. 
And are, are these, were they worth living my life for? And are they even right now, are they valuable enough to live my life for? Like, like, and I think, like, if, if they were gone tomorrow, like, I'd miss them, right? But I'd miss the fact that I'm going to carry them around for the next 20 years. But if they were gone tomorrow, my life wouldn't be shattered one way or the other. And so I have to ask myself the question, are they worth pouring my lifelong pursuit, devotion, and, and, and all of my time and effort and energy into it? I think the answer for me is no. I, thought, I enjoy the memories, but I don't think it's worth it. And so the next question that I have to ask myself is, is there anything, is there anything in life valuable enough for us to give all of our time, effort, energy, and our focus, passionate pursuit to? And I think the answer is probably yes. This morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, which I'll open up the Bibles and turn over there. If you're new to your Bible, find the New Testament as well, we're halfway in. And then just keep flipping over to the right, eventually you'll land in Philippians. But I, th I think Paul tells us exactly what it is that's worth our time, our effort, and all of our, our focused attention on. And, and so if you have a pen, I hope you do, uh, and you have some paper there in your worship folder, uh, a little note section, I want you to write this down. Okay? And, and as you write this down, I want this to stay in, in the back of your mind as we talk um, about everything that we're going to talk about this morning. Because I think Paul makes this argument uh, throughout this section of the book that the greatest ambition and treasure in life is to know Jesus. Let me write that down. The greatest ambition in life is to know Jesus. The greatest ambition of Paul's life, the greatest ambition of your life, the greatest ambition of my life, whether we're there right now in, in actuality or that becomes aspirational for us, the greatest ambition that we'll ever have in life is to know Jesus. The greatest ambition, the greatest goal, the greatest treasure that we'll ever have is to know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, everything else seems to make sense. Everything else seems to fall in place. There was a man by the name of uh, J.I. Packer who's a fantastic speaker, who's a fantastic writer. He wrote a book called Knowing God. Maybe you've read it. It's, it's uh, uh, one of those uh, books that if you have you know, 10 books sitting on your shelf that just kind of lead you into the presence of God, this is probably one of those books. Jared Packer said that once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own. And I think, and for our context, I think what he's saying is that when, when God becomes the main ambition, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, when he becomes your main ambition, knowing him becomes the main ambition, your greatest ambition in life, everything else seems to make sense. Everything, everything else seems to fall. This doesn't mean that everything is always perfect. doesn't mean that everything always goes right. doesn't mean that you'll, you'll stay out of trouble. But when he's the main ambition in your life, everything else in your world, family, Friends, work, desires, passions, everything finds their value, their significance. When we understand that our main pursuit and ambition in life is to be God first and then everything else, right? And so Paul's going to lead us into this thought the main ambition in our life is to know Jesus. So we start off in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And is safe. This isn't the first time that Paul's used the word rejoice or take joy uh, um, or, or any of that aspect in this book. He's actually used it several times up to this point. 
But right now, he's using it as a transition. Because he's getting ready to shift focus here. He's using it as a transition to address a major theological issue that was going on inside of the church there in Philippi. An issue that he became aware of by a Pacroditus who would come to him, and he lifted up as an example last week, right? Uh, there at the beginning of, or at the end of chapter 2. He's become aware of this theological issue, and so now he's getting ready to address it. And it's likely a question that you have at some point in your life. And some of you that are in the room right now, it may be a question that centers in your world, in your mind right now. And the question is this, what makes me right with God? What makes me right with God? In other words, how does a filthy, dirty, depraved human being like me be able to stand in the presence of a holy God? What makes me right with God? Because if the greatest ambition of our life is to, and the greatest treasure of our life is to know Christ Jesus how can someone like me, how can somebody like us stand rightly before God so much so that it, that, that it will begin to transition into he becomes the goal of my life, that it actually becomes a reality? It's almost like if, if we're on one side of a cliff, right, and God's sitting on the other side of the cliff, he's standing on the other side of the cliff, and, and it's true that sin has separated us. And it's not God that has caused sin. It's not God that has separated. It's the fact that sin has separated. And if it's true that God is on one side, how do we get to the other side where we desperately know that we need to be? And, and what's happened over the course of history, from century to century, from people group to people, from civilization to civilization, to civilization there's always been this question, how do I get right with God? Maybe not the monotheist God of Israel, not the, the God of, of Christianity, but, but any God. There, in every civilization, people are trying to figure out, how do I get right with the one who's above everything? And, and it usually centers down into two, uh, boils down into two different areas. I can put a lot of the focus on me. I can say, okay, I've got to do everything that I can to, to figure out how to be good enough, to work hard enough, to, to impress him enough that he would smile upon me, and, that he would, and then I can work my way over to him. So then the onus of the effort becomes on me. I've got to get my way to him. And the second way that all of history has worked is, you know what? I'm not going to try to do this all on my own. I'm going to trust that somehow in God's grace and in his mercy and in his provision and all of his goodness that he's made a way because I don't think that I'm going to be able to get through this game. I don't think I can wade my way through. I don't think that I can be good enough. I don't think that I can be perfect enough or holy enough to make it to God. So it's either the onus is on me or the onus is on, on God. And so people then can spend their entire lives working to try to be good enough to fill up this gap that's in between them and God. And so I'll, I'll put a lot of effort in. I'll try to be good enough. I'll work hard enough. I'll have live a moral life. I'll live a good life. And, and, and then so so if it begins to add up, then I'll have this bridge that gets me right over to God. Right? Or... I'll spend my life enjoying the way and the one that God has made for us to get in. It's on me or it's on him. And the unfortunate part is that too often, instead of trusting the way that God has given for us to make our way to him, the, the provision that he's made for us to be right with him, we end up making our entire lives on trying to fill up this gap in and of ourselves. So much so that the main ambition of our life isn't to know Jesus, isn't to know the one who's made the way, but the main ambition of our life becomes to try to clean up everything on the outside. The main ambition of our life seems to, if I can just be a good dad, if I can just be a good mom, if I can just work hard enough, if I can just earn enough, if I can live morally enough, if I can just do all this stuff and clean up the outside, the main ambition and the treasure of our life becomes focused on 
being good enough rather than on knowing and enjoying the way that God has made and knowing that he is. And so what Paul does in this section of this letter is he addresses this group of people who are teaching this false doctrine of that Jesus isn't enough. That it's not just about Jesus. That you have to, you can have Jesus, but on top of Jesus, your main ambition, your main goal in life needs to be to follow a set of traditions and to follow a set of rules and to live as a Jewish man or to live as a Jewish woman in connection with Jesus. And so follow all these rules. And for us, if we were trying to put this in our context, it would be like us saying, you know what, I've got a Christian scorecard that I need to keep up with. I've got all these things, and if I, if I can just get an A in all these sections, or if I can get more A's than I do get F's, and if I can check off more than I don't check off, and at the end of the day, then I'll be approved. And God's going to allow me to step on alongside of my side of the cliff over to his, and it's going to be a good day for us. I'll be approved with him. And Paul is going to say, no, 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 that's not the case. I want you to listen to the tone of the language that he says here in verse 2. This type of attitude, this is what comes out of Paul. He says, look out. And this is like, it's like, beware, right? Look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The group of people that Paul is addressing is a group of people called the Judaizers who hung around the church, and they were uh, Jewish uh, men and women who liked the idea of Jesus. They even believed a little bit of the best of Jesus, right? That he was God's son, to, to some degree. But on top of that, if you wanted to be right with God, it wasn't just trust Jesus. He wasn't enough for your salvation. You had to follow the laws of being a Jew on top of just trusting Jesus. And so they went around to those who were trusting the pure and unadulterated message of Jesus. And they went around to this group of people that, who, were, who were coming into the family of God. They went around to the people who were who were who have already been made citizens of heaven and saying, you know what? Trusting Jesus isn't enough. You have to be like us too. You have to be like one of us Jewish men, one of us Jewish women. You've got to jump into Judaism as well, which meant for them the main issue centered on this idea of circumcision. You had to go and you had to be circumcised and you had to follow all of the Mosaic law. Can <laughs> you imagine? Or you, when you came in here this morning, we gave you the requirement. So here's the 635 laws, and oh, by the way, you have to be circumcised to come in here and to worship with us. Yikes. This is what Paul is, is going against here. So really, if you want to be part of the family of God, you want to be made right with God, that's good. Trust Jesus. And now take a knife with you after you've trusted Jesus and go over there and get circumcised. And when you're done with that, then we've got this list of 635 rules for you to live by day in and day out. Anybody want to sign up for that? Anybody want a piece of that? No. And that's what Paul is saying here. Circumcision was never important. It was always about the person's heart towards God. It wasn't a circumcision of the physical flesh, it was a circumcision of the spiritual heart. And so in order to protect against this legalistic nonsense, what Paul does, he brings out, is this very, very strong language. It says, beware of these dogs and evildoers who mutilate the flesh. They're not following a right of circumcision. They're not following a right that makes you right with God because they've got no heart connection to that. They're, they're, just, they're just cutting people. They're mutilating people. <laughs> And then so Paul contrasts verse 2 with verse 3. He says, they're not the real circumcision. We're the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see the contrast there? They're mutilators, they're dogs, they're evildoers, but the real connection to God is this issue of the heart who worship Him by the Spirit of God that's been put inside of them and they glory in what Christ has done and not in what they have done. They look across the gap and they, and they, and they say, do more, do more, do more. But he says, we look across the gap, there's no way that I could ever be good enough. There's no way that I could ever do the requirements that God has called of me. And, and, and I see that God has made a way through Jesus. So instead of me trying to do everything just perfectly, instead of me trying to do enough and add up enough, I'm going to trust the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus. The work that he did, his perfect life, and his death on the cross. And so Paul says, over here, you've got the dogs who say, do more. Clean yourself up. Say the right thing. Let your main ambition in life be stacking up and filling up the gap between you and God. And if you add up enough, you'll be able to walk across to the other side. Do enough. And over here... He says, it's not the dogs, it's the true circumcision. It's those who have said, my works will never be enough. There's never enough good that I can do. There's never enough of a tradition that I can do. There's never enough money that I can give. There's not enough generosity. There's not enough charity. There's not enough church attendance. There's not enough penance. There's just not enough good that I can do to fill the gap between my sin and God's holiness. And so, because I can't do it, I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to trust the way that he's made it. But the rub for us comes in in the fact that nothing else in our world works like this, does it? Nothing else in our society and our culture works this way. Like, our culture doesn't understand grace this way. See, if you want anything good, if you want to earn anything, you have to work for it. If you want, if you want to gain, if you want to, if you want to get paid, if you want to have anything successful in your life, you have to earn it, you have to work for it. And every religion of our culture does the same thing, Right? In every religion, you have to work for what God is going to give you. If you want ecstasy, work for it. If you want bliss, work for it. If you want salvation, work for it. If you want utopia, if you want a better standing in the next life, then work better in this life. If you want to be right with God, it all depends on how you perform and on what you're able to accomplish if you're going to be able to measure up. And, and you may not, at the end of the day, be Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa is kind of the standard of good that we kind of have in our culture. So at the end of the day, you may not be Mother Teresa, but as long as you're not Ted Bundy, right? Don't we live like this? I may not be her, but if I'm not him, then I'm pretty okay. If I've done more good than I have bad, if I've worked hard enough, then I'll be okay, I'll be making So the experience that we have in normal everyday life says you have to earn it. Work for it until you're good enough. And what ends up happening is we ride this constant roller coaster. Because sometimes you feel like you're good enough, don't you? There are sometimes you just feel like, I've done, I've done enough. I feel like I've accomplished enough. Sometimes you feel like you have enough. But then there are days when just the bottom drops out. <laughs> and you feel like, man, I can't do enough. I can't be enough. I don't have enough. And if we base our confidence on what we have or what we don't have. What we do or what we don't do. What we've done or what we haven't done. The question for us is always going to be, is it enough? Have I done enough? And so the question that we ask again is, what makes me right with God? Is it my own righteousness? Or is it a righteousness that comes from outside of me, that gets applied to me because of something that somebody else 
has done? Is it my righteousness or God's righteousness? Could it ever be anything that we have done? Could it ever be anything that we will ever do that will make us righteous and right before God? And Paul says, if it could ever be anything that anybody's ever done, if it could ever be skills attained, if it ever could be goodness, if anybody could ever fill in the gap between God and the sin gap or in, in, in us, if there could ever be anybody who could fill in this gap and walk across on goodness, it would be me. He says, well, look at my resume. Look at my flesh. Look at my credentials. And what I want you to do in these next verses, starting in verse 4, is I want you to hear the futility in Paul's voice. And even the sarcasm that he comes across with in this, because he's trying to say, this, there's no way that this will work. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You hear what he said? He said, if you think you're good, I'm better. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Blameless. So that I had the right family. I had the right lineage. I was ethnically pure. If anybody can make it, I can make it. I know my background. I know where I've come from. I went to all the right schools. Mom and Daddy raised me right. And then for me personally, I, I followed the law. I taught the law. I was blameless when it came to the law. I wasn't perfect. I was pretty stinking good. But I wasn't perfect. But when I messed up, I did all the right things in order to be made right with God. I did all the right sacrifices. I did all the penance. That I, mean, I did everything that I needed to do in order to get righteous before God again. So in a sense, there has never been anybody more righteous than me. There's never been a more righteous human being than me. He says, I was blameless. For us, I think we would say, whoa, Paul. Whoa, settle down. What are you talking about? Here, you're sounding kind of prideful. He says, yeah, you better believe it. Because I've done it all. I'm blameless. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. How do you know it doesn't work, Paul? Well, I know it doesn't work because Jesus told me it doesn't work. I was standing here on my side of the cliff. I was living my best life now. I was doing everything that I could. I was doing everything good. I was standing in confidence on what I've done being better than everybody else. But then something happened. Right? Living on all of my good stuff. Living on all of my good deeds, but then something happened. We know Saul in Acts chapter 9 has this interaction with Jesus. And then Jesus stops in and stops him on his way and flips his life upside down. And everything that he's been living for, everything that has been dear to him, everything that has been his main ambition in his life, his letterman jacket, his trophies, his cards, everything that has been important to him is laid bare out in the open. And Jesus says, listen to me, Saul. There is so much more than this. There's so much more than self-effort. I've done so much more than you could ever imagine. Would you come follow me? Build the church. Come be a part of this. And he looked at all the treasures and ambitions of his life. Everything that he's worked so hard for. And he leaves it all behind. Everything that he lists from four to seven or four to six, and he just leaves it all fine. And he followed Jesus. And he didn't step across the gap of his own goodness. He stepped across the gap of the goodness and the grace and the mercy 
and the perfection of Jesus. That's how he was able to stand before God. Now think about this. Do, do, you have any, do we have any Pauls in here? Is there anybody in here that would identify with Paul? Where, where we stand here on our side of the cliff, and we look at our life and we say, man, I, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And, and, and I look over there and I, and I see God, and the way that I'm going to get to Him is I'm just going to throw all of myself into this. And so I take my work and I throw my work in there. I throw my church attendance in there. I throw my morality in there. I throw my personality in there. Man, people like me, I'm friendly. People like me and around me. I throw my ability to, to reason in there. I throw my, my brain in there. And so now I'm just a smart dude or I'm a smart guy. I throw everything about myself into that pit, my, my upbringing. I've got good parents. They raised me in church, and, 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 and I came up the right way. And I throw all of that in there, and we stand there on our edge, holding all of our ambitions and our treasures, and we try to walk across on that in this confidence in ourselves. Are there any falls in here? People who would say, I've tried it all. I've had it all. I'm standing here with it all in my hands. But it's just not working. Like it's not, it's it's not enough. If, if, if that's your own the list real close to what Paul's getting ready to say next, because he steps aside of all this bravado, right? He steps aside of, of all of this, of this, this, this big talking that he's doing right now, the self-confidence, and he says, Listen, that's never gonna work. Actually, it's never worked. Circumcision has never been about the flesh, it's never been about then this idea of performance, being made right with God, has never been about what we're capable of doing. It's always been about the heart. And I can't change my heart. Only the righteousness and the perfection and the holiness of Christ's life applied to my life can change my heart. And so if I stand here trying to get to the other side of my own work and my own effort, it will never work. It will never work. Only the righteousness. Look at verse 7. And as you hear it, what I, what I want you to do is I want you to see this gap that stands between man and God, between us and God. I want you to see it being filled, not with the work that Paul has just talked about, but I want you to see that gap being filled with Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in the order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Do you hear that? Not a righteousness that comes from me, of doing everything right, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that his righteousness applied to my life that is established by faith. Nothing that we've done, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this isn't Paul at the end saying, I don't know if I'm going to have the resurrection. I think this is Paul talking about looking forward to the rapture that he'll talk about in, in, uh, to the Thessalonians uh, a little later. It's almost like Paul is standing here. For, the, for you guys who like to do uh, uh, profits and losses charts, right? And the gains and losses. It's almost like Paul is standing here saying, everything that has been the main ambition of my life, all of this good stuff that I've invested my life in, I've counted, I've laid it all up in this gains column. It's all good. But when I begin to measure that up against the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
none of this stands up. And so he takes all this stuff, everything that's being considered gain, and he moves it out of the gaining column, and he moves it over to the lost column, and says that in comparison to Jesus, none of this matters. None of it. Let me remind you, the stuff that Paul was doing was good stuff. And Paul was a good follower of God. He was a good follower of all the law. Ten times out of ten, he was doing the right thing. But in the comparative holiness of God, all of that stuff, Paul says, was filthy. Isaiah talked about this in the book of Isaiah. He said, all of our good works like filthy rags. Filthy rags. And Paul says, it was rubbish. It was trash. The word that he uses here is this word uh, for human excrement or, or, or animal excrement. It was the idea of I'm just going to be crass for just a couple seconds. Okay? This is the idea of poop. And, and what Paul is, is doing is he's trying to use really explicitly strong language so that people can know how dangerous following this, this uh, works-based salvation can be. And so what he said, the language that he uses, he says, listen, I've stacked all of this up. I threw all of this into the pit. And I was standing on a pile of crap thinking that I can make my way to God. And it just didn't work. It's garbage in comparison to Christ. I want to point out two things in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why does he count it all as loss? He counts it all as loss because the next very next words, because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of knowing him, he stacked it all up and said, it all dolls in comparison. The greatest ambition that Paul found in his life wasn't following the law. It wasn't doing everything right, although obedience comes out of this. The greatest ambition that Paul has in his life now is to know Christ. He's counted everything lost with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. See, what I think what we see in these this passage is that there's a distinct, the distinct difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. There's a distinct difference in loving the idea of Jesus and following Jesus. There's a distinct difference in how we live when, with this surpassing value of Jesus. When that becomes a normal part of our life, and we stack up against the things that I do, there is a difference between the two. And if we were to take everything that we're living for, if we were to take all the ambitions, the main ambitions of our life, and we were to stack it up, whatever your ambition is, whatever it would be, your, your cards and your trophies and, and your jackets, the, the things that would be a shrine to, to your greatest values in life. If you were to take all that and stack it up, and if you were to put it beside Jesus, if Jesus doesn't look surpassingly more valuable to you than these things, then that's a conversation between you and the Lord. This says, God, I, I want you to be the main ambition in life. I want your son Jesus to be the greatest treasure in my life. When I was in seminary, man, we studied hard. We studied, we studied about God. We studied the Bible. We studied the Son. We studied the Spirit. We, we, we studied um, eschatology. We studied soteriology. We studied all these ologies. And, and we knew so much about the Bible. We knew so much about God. And as I study and as we study, there seemed to be a pandemic that would take place. And eventually, the love for God 
the love for us on Jesus begins to get supplanted, and the precedence becomes uh, the precedence of having a relationship, relational knowledge, and interaction with Jesus begins to get supplanted by having a, a theoretical knowledge of all the truths of God. And then before too long, knowing about Jesus becomes the goal. Knowing more about him, knowing more about theology, knowing more about the Bible begins to be the goal as opposed to having a relational transfer of love between you and the Father. And, and the unfortunate part is knowing more is supposed to lead you to a place of more love for him. Knowing more about him is supposed to lead you into this place of worship and devotion and allegiance. But unfortunately, sometimes knowledge turns to pride. And sometimes even more than turning into pride, it turns into this casual kind of laissez-faire, this casual acquaintance with Jesus, this person that we interact with every once in a while when it's convenient for us or when we have the time. And Paul is saying there's a difference in knowing about Jesus. And there's a difference in actually knowing him. He says, I stood there on the edge. I looked across. I saw that my work could never fill in the gap. And, and I saw the work of Jesus. And I laid it all down and I entrusted his work. My main ambition in my life now is Jesus. Not just about him, but knowing him. Look at verse 8 again and 9. Indeed, I found everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not found in my work, but found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says the most valuable thing for him was knowing Jesus. Second thing that he points out here in these few verses is this idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So I want you to write that down. I don't know if you've heard that language before, but he's teaching a theology called imputed righteousness. And imputed righteousness simply means what belongs to Jesus now belongs to me. What belongs to Jesus has now been credited to your account. It's been given to you. He's talking about a righteousness and a right standing with God that doesn't come from us. Imputed righteousness, it comes from Jesus. Imputed means credited to our account. It's it's all of the holiness, all of perfection, all of the obedience of Christ being applied to our lives. The righteousness that we could never earn on our own, that we could never rise up to on our own. It's his righteousness applied to my life, and his righteousness now is my righteousness. His holiness then becomes our holiness. And the only way that that could ever happen is that Jesus bridged the gap that our work will never bridge. Jesus, in his obedience, in his perfect holiness, in his sacrifice, he bridged the gap. And in faith, we trust him. We trust the work that he's done, and he applies his sacrifice and his holiness to our life. That's imputed righteousness. Justin Paul talks about it in Romans. He talks about it in so many of his letters. So how can a person be right with God? How can somebody like us stand before a holy God? It's not by our work, it will never be by our work, but the righteousness that's been imputed to us by Jesus himself. See, it's easy for us to, to go back and, and, and look in the closet and pull out things that are treasures for us, and, and to relish on the memories and think about all of that stuff. It's another thing for us to start evaluating what we've been living for. 
It's one thing to, to look at, man, this was this was good stuff. It's another thing to weigh that up against Christ and say, is he my main ambition? Is my ambition, is my desire to know Jesus? And so the question for us then is, do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus? Not just about him, but do we know Jesus? Is he the main ambition of your life? Is he? We live in an age that's full of all kinds of data. You can know anything at any point. I mean, there's not, a, there's not a day that goes by in our house where we're not sitting at the table and we're having breakfast, lunch, or dinner, right? And, and somebody comes up with like, the kids come up with a question, Ashley asks a question, I ask a question, and we just don't know the answer to it. And do you know what the next words in our house are? Hey, Google or hey, Alexa, right? And we are not devoid of information. We're not devoid of knowledge by, by any sake. And there's so much that we know. We know so much about politics. We know so much uh, about work-related things. We know so much about sports. We know so much about social media. Uh, like, but I want you to know that knowing Jesus is more important than politics. Knowing Jesus is more important than the candidates who are going to be running in 2020. It's important. It should inform our voting. But knowing Jesus is more important than that. Knowing Jesus is more important than this is going to hurt Knowing Jesus is more important than sports. Knowing Jesus, I, like I moved from Dallas. Cowboys are life in Dallas. And I thought it could never be anything like that. Anywhere else I would go. I moved to Nebraska. And Cowboys Nation is nothing compared to Husker Nation. I'm going to tell you that. But knowing Jesus is more important than Husker football. Knowing Jesus is more important than Husker volleyball. Knowing Jesus is more than sports all over the place. And knowing Jesus is more important, I would say, even our families. And, that, and that's strong. Right? I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my family. I believe I'll lay down my life for them. Right? Knowing Jesus is far more important than even our families. And so the question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Not just about him. As you sit here right now, beyond church attendance, beyond showing up, beyond being wise, like, do you know Jesus? The most important ambition you can ever have in your life. J.R. Packer said, once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems will fall into place on your own accord. If he is the main ambition of our life, everything else seems to make sense. Do you know? Father, thank you. Thanks for your word. Thanks for Paul's example. Thanks for his challenge. Thank you that this relates to us. I mean, everything is available to us. And the ambition of our life can be so easy to just stack up treasure, stack up treasure, stack up treasure, thinking that I'm living for the right things, but when we look at the perspective of us on one side, God on the other, our good work, our moral life, 
just isn't enough to bridge a gap that sin has broken between us and God. Father, in our effort to try, but, but I pray that you would allow us all of the truth I now know that our effort will never do the work. That we don't have to work for something that you've already provided for us, that in faith we can trust your son Jesus. We can trust the work that he's done. And we can be made right before you. And as we're made right before you, then our, our main ambition in our life can be to follow you, to know you, to know your son, to know your ways, to know your life, to know what, what drives you so that it might drive us, to know your goodness, your mercy, and your grace, to be overwhelmed by it. And so, Father, if there's anybody in this room right now who just doesn't know your son Jesus, doesn't know his life, doesn't know his, his death, doesn't know his resurrection, doesn't know that he can apply his righteousness to their life, I pray that they would trust you right now. And so, Father, I pray that you speak to them in this moment. Listen to me. If you don't know Jesus, right now I'm talking to you. Okay? If knowledge has been your thing, if church attendance has been your thing, I'm talking to you. Because Paul lived a perfect life on every scale, but he didn't yet know Jesus. He said that wasn't enough. But the moment he ran into Jesus, his life changed. And so I'm talking to you to have a run in with Jesus right now. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm just going to ask you, not that this prayer would save you, that you would get right, that you would let your heart be molded and shaped by Jesus right now, and you would just pray, Father, I've tried it, I've tried it, and I've tried it to be right with you. But it hasn't worked. And it will never work. So right now, here today, take it like savings, not like I'm trusting yourself, Jesus, for my life and eternity. And I'm trusting you for my life and my ambition right now to know your son Jesus. And I'm not going to come, but I'm not going to touch your shoulder. I'm not going to come and talk to you right now. But if that's been you, I ask you that you would just kind of raise your hands up and pray for you uh, in between this service and the next. If you've trusted Jesus, just throw your hands up. If you've trusted Jesus and you've found your place, God, I mean, there have been seasons of growth in my life, there's been seasons of fruition, there's been seasons where I've just felt the Lord. But right now I'm in a place where knowledge has just been carrying me and I haven't really been allowing Jesus to be my ambition. I'm afraid that today would be the day for you that you just say, Man, I'm tired of it. I don't want to live on yesterday, I want to live knowing Jesus today. And so again, today, on whatever the date is today, that you would know. You're just kind of driving a stake in the ground and saying, I'm not just going to live on cultural Christianity. I'm not going to live on this Facebook. I'm going to live by making my ambition to know and to follow and to have this daily experience in life with Jesus. So maybe that's you. Father, again, thanks for our time this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work in every single one of us, draw us closer to you, and for the very first time, for some of us, 
draw us to him. And I thank you right now for the life that you've established in, in, in people this morning. For the saving faith that you've given and have applied your righteousness to their life. That you be honored, that you be glorified, all things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.